Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 5 this morning. In your New Testament scriptures, and continuing our study in this great letter of Paul, Romans chapter 5. We'll consider the second half of this great chapter this morning. Romans chapter 5. And I will read verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes this morning to see. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit. Thank you for the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to come and bring together Jew and Gentile in one spiritual body to fill and create this new temple and to continue your great redemptive program and your mission in the world. And thank you that that Spirit lives among us today, both within us and individuals, and also manifesting his presence here when we gather together. So teach us today, Spirit of God, open our eyes and help us to see, fill me with the Spirit, to preach well, and to know your grace. And Lord, you be our teacher, and and you be the one that empowers us to serve. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you get rid of darkness? Thankfully, it's an easy fix. You turn on a light. After all, what is darkness but the absence of light? 
Maybe you're going down a dark hallway, you turn on a light, your child is nervous in the middle of the night, you may turn on a closet light or some light like that. I've, I'm 40, but I've had to come over here in the winter, and believe me, when I walk through this church in the night, I turn on a light. This place is spooky. You get rid of the darkness by turning on light. just the building, not a reflection on the people. Uh, you turn on a light. And even the Bible appeals to this reality. Psalm 30, verse 5 celebrates, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. The psalm celebrates that after a dark night of weeping compared to a time of God's anger, well, the coming of the morning light has power to produce joy. The brightness of the morning is more powerful than the darkness of the night. And maybe some of you have experienced that before. An anxious or a restless night gives way to a new day and there's some relief. Well, the scriptures compare that at times to a season of God's anger that gives way to a season of great joy and God's grace. And in the passage we've read today, it celebrates that transition It celebrates a bright moment in the history of salvation. In the midst of the world's dark history, the sun has risen in God's redemptive story. And the reign of death has been conquered through the reign of life through Jesus Christ. And not only does God's salvation answer the problem of sin, we use that language and it's legitimate, it it solves the problem of sin, But what this passage emphasizes is the brightness of this saving moment, it's even greater than the darkness that came before. You see, throughout Romans, Paul has been telling this story, this drama of God's purpose, God's salvation through the gospel. And he's focused on the bad news. He's told us of humanity's rebellion against God, our misuse of creation and one another. And he's even hinted at the fact that, look, some of the supposed solutions to the problem, Israel and the law, well, they've only made the problem worse. It's brought God's wrath, not salvation. But God, because he loves sinners, has provided a faithful Israelite, one who has brought righteousness, one who has brought reconciliation to those who believe. And God, through Christ, justifies sinners by faith and gives them the spirit to preserve them through suffering. And the power of the gospel delivers sinners from condemnation and brings them into a new world where nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. That's our hope. That's our assurance in the gospel as we focused on last week. But why is Paul so confident? How does he know that those who are justified by faith will also be saved in the future? What is it about Christ that not only gives us a righteous status, but creates this whole new world that makes us new creations and creates a new reality in which we live? Well, in order to answer those questions, Paul gives us this passage where he steps back for a moment and just looks at the whole sweep of human history and boils it down to the story of two men. 
and shows how God, through Christ, has overcome the effects of Adam's sin. God has created a new humanity. And Paul is confident in Christ because his new creation, Christ's obedience, triumphs over Adam's disobedience. So as we go through this passage, here's what I want us to see this morning. On the one hand, we'll see we cannot, we must not deny the reality of sin, of our sin. It is dark. It is deadly. We have a fundamental problem on the inside and no one apart from Christ can solve that problem. No one can fix it. But we will also see from this passage that Christ's salvation is greater than our sin. The reign of grace triumphs over the reign of sin. So let's look at the passage together. Let's go by and let's see how Christ's obedience triumphs over our disobedience. And that gives you an idea of the two approaches we'll make to the passage. First, let's think about the deadly effects of our disobedience. The deadly effects of our disobedience. Paul begins there by reminding us of the negative, the entrance of sin into the world. Verse 12 reads, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Why is there death in the world? Why is there wickedness in the world? Why do people who seem at times to start out good turn to evil? Because of Adam's sin and our complicity with that sin. First, Paul addresses Adam's Sin sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. When Adam ate the fruit of the tree in the Garden of Eden, he rebelled against God's command. Paul uses the word Adam sinned. And, and Paul will use a lot of words in this passage. We'll see trespass and other uh, disobedience, other sin words. But he starts here with the word most commonly used in the New Testament, used more than any other word for sin. And it very simply means departing from God's standards. Departing from God's standards of right behavior. When Adam broke God's command, he rebelled, he departed, he forgot, he ignored, forgot in the intentional sense, God's instruction, plain and simple. And now because of that sin, because of that rebellion, death is present in God's creation. And what kind of death? Well, Genesis 3 tells us that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked. Their innocence had been taken away. They experienced the shame of being exposed, of being caught. And furthermore, when God then came walking in the garden, Adam and Eve hid. They tried to run away from the consequences of their shame. God in his mercy drew them out. But as a punishment, God announced a life of hardship. Now the creation will rebel against you and one day, Your very bodies will return to the dust of the ground. That's just all packed right into Genesis 3. And we could even go beyond that to other passages that speak of being subjected to God's wrath 
and liable to the torments of hell. Sin brought all that death. Physical death, spiritual death, separation from God, condemnation before God, wreckage and ruin in God's good earth. But not only did Adam and Eve sin, Paul also wants us to see how we are complicit in this wickedness. The second half of verse 12 reads, In this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Now those go together pointing now to our sin, that all people sin. Adam's sin brought death. But death has come to all people because all sinned. Now there is a connection between Adam and humanity. Paul will note that. In just a moment. But notice first, he just lays out both truths right there, side by side. Adam sinned and brought death, and we all die because we all sin. We all willingly participate in sin. We say yes to sin just like Adam did. And therefore, we deserve condemnation and death. Now, what about that connection? We'll skip ahead to a minute to verses 18 And 19, he he gives more details here later in the passage. Notice just the first half of verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, and the first half of verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Adam's one trespass, his one act of disobedience, resulted in condemnation and a sinful status for all people. Paul seems to be assuming that there's a connection between the two, a corporate connection, an invisible union between Adam and all humanity. And the result is that what Adam did counts against us. The results of his sin are credited To you and me. Now that's bad news for that connection. That will be very good news for another connection. But before we get to that, we have to realize none of us can escape the guilt. None of us can escape the condemnation, the deadly effects of sin. What Adam did counts against us. And not only that, as Paul's already said, we also willingly participate. We commit our own sins, and so we all justly deserve the sentence of condemnation, the death that hangs over all humanity. And by the way, lest there be any doubt, maybe we're looking for a trap door to get away from this, Paul pauses his comparison for a moment to answer that potential objection. Look back at verses 13 to 14. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now, on the one hand, when you read these, it almost sounds like Paul's letting us off the hook for our sin when we aren't given specific commandments. He uses that phrase, sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. But notice that he immediately follows that up by reasserting the universal reign of sin and death. Nevertheless, death reigned 
from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. Paul was making the point, even in the period before the law, death still reigned. And if death is reigning, what does that mean? People are still sinning. Death comes because all sin. And so therefore, the reign of death shows the reality of sin. So there's no escape from condemnation, no trap door. Before I leave this, I, I do think we should try to understand Paul's statements that sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. What about this description of a period of time from Adam to Moses when death reigns, even over those who don't sin by breaking a command? Does Paul imagine an age of innocence after the fall where people didn't have commands and so they weren't guilty of sin? I think what Paul is doing here is utilizing a comparison. A comparison between an awareness of personal sinfulness before and after the law. So when you read Genesis, when you read the first half of Exodus, all that history before Mount Sinai, people do not seem to think that there are no rules to follow. I mean, Cain seems to be pretty aware of the fact that it's wrong to murder his brother. That's why he tries to distance himself from God's accusation. Abraham is rebuked for lying when he claims his wife is his sister. The Israelites are instructed not to gather manna on the Sabbath. That's before the Ten Commandments are given. However, with the entrance of the law, once we get to Mount Sinai, there is a sharpened focus on humanity's obligation to obey God and on the punishments that result from disobedience. And Paul basically says this in verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. It is the entrance of the law, rather than solving the problem of sin, only makes it worse. So I think Paul's point here is there is a greater degree of responsibility, yes, When one is bound by a written commandment, there's a sharpened focus, a greater judgment. But nonetheless, we still see the reign of death, which means that there is still the reign of sin. And so no one escapes. And so here's what that means for you and me. Sin is a power, and you cannot defeat it yourself. It is a power you inherit from your first parents. And I think we need to understand, especially as Christians, you know, maybe it's very easy for us to give lip service to sin. Yeah, I sin. Everybody sins. I can admit that. No, we are talking a damning, destructive power, one that we all indulge and obey. And because of that, you need the grace of God. You need God's power to set you free. You need God's mercy to forgive you. And it is that triumph of grace then that Paul gives his attention to in the rest of the passage. So let's come now to that focus where we see in the other verses the greater life we have through Christ's obedience. The rest of this passage is a comparison between Adam and Christ. Paul started to do this in verse 12, but if you notice he kind of broke away for a moment. 
But he comes back to the comparison in verse 15. This is where he's going to ramp up to his conclusion. And Paul is going to make several comparisons in these final verses. You noticed it when we had the opening reading. But maybe you also notice, hey, he, he makes a lot of comparisons. He uses long sentences. It can, it can almost seem repetitive. But stay with me. Each comparison emphasizes a unique aspect, something about the work of Christ. And beyond that, what I really want you to notice, if you, if you get nothing else from what I've said today, don't miss this. When Paul makes each comparison, he's not just saying, okay, on the one hand we got Adam, and on the other hand we got Christ, as if they were equal. No. Each comparison makes the point, if this is what Adam did, then how much greater is what Christ did. And that's the reality you inhabit. That's the world in which you live now. So let's look at those comparisons. You you see what I'm saying right off the bat in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. You catch that language of abundance? Overflowing grace? Yes, many died through Adam's trespass. But God's grace overflows to many. Sin and death are found in Adam. But there is a super abundance of grace found in Christ. As one author puts it, the enjoyment of the gift and grace of God will be even more certain than the death that came to all in Adam. And that's good news that we need to hear, because we live, our eyes see, we experience maybe the reign of sin and death. Believing that grace and forgiveness are an even greater reality, well, that calls for faith. But Paul's point is that reality is even greater than the one of sin and death. Notice then in verse 16, Paul highlights different consequences. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Sin brings condemnation. But Jesus' work brings justification. And if you think about it, it's easy to be condemned. We're born condemned. We condemn ourselves through our actions. But the hard work of Christ... The faithful life and death, well, there's a perfect life that counts for you. There's a perfect death that pays for sins. And notice also in this verse the number of sins that God took into account when he sent Christ for us. Adam's condemnation had followed one sin, and it was deadly. But Christ's work came after years and years of sin. After person upon person sinning. I mean, think about in your own life when you forgive someone. Maybe it's easy that first time. But again, and again, and again, and again, this is how Christ acted in the midst of the world's sinful history. Earlier, Paul uses this language about storing up wrath against yourself. For the day of wrath. And I, and I imagine just a big cauldron sitting on a fire. And every time we sin, we're just pouring 
a cup into that cauldron and it's filling and it's boiling and we are in danger of someone coming and just kicking that cauldron over and all that boiling wrath flowing out and destroying us. That's a legitimate warning. But Paul also says here, look at those accumulated sins. Look at all that wrath. Look at all that guilt. What did God do when he came to the cauldron? He picked it up and he drank it. And he drank it for you and me. And one author says that is the miracle of miracles. That that is utterly beyond human comprehension. Verse 17 then emphasizes the life we have because of Christ's work. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more? Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And here you've got some of the different emphases starting to all flow together into one great river. The abundant provision of grace. The gift of righteousness. But what is the result of those gifts? We live. And not only do we live, we reign in life. The reign of death is defeated by the reign of life. And so you can also sense here just Paul's sense of story. He gives us these great doctrinal truths. But there's always like an, an underlying story going underneath them. You've got what Adam introduced. But look at what Christ has introduced. Humanity died there that day in the Garden of Eden. But now God's come and he's made a new humanity. He's made a new creation. He's brought you into that new world through the work of grace. And that is where you now live. And so verses 18 and 19, they begin to bring things to a conclusion. These two verses give you the full comparison. If you want to summarize the whole passage, verses 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, So one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Again, as certain as it is that Adam's sin brings condemnation and guilt, so it is certain, even more certain, That Christ brings justification, a righteous status, eternal life for all who are connected to him. And I do think before we conclude, we should answer the question, who is it that benefits from Christ's work? In other words, does the same group condemned in Adam also experience salvation in Christ? And I'm asking because of the language that Paul uses. He does use the same language to describe the two groups. Many died. Grace overflows to the many. Condemnation comes to all. Christ's righteous act results in justification and life for all. Many were made sinners and many will be made righteous. And some have seen in here what's called a soft universalism or an evangelical universalism in which in the end everyone is saved, albeit Still through Christ. I think Paul's statement in verse 17 pushes back against that. He says there, those who receive 
God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man. Again, the key phrase there, those who receive the provision. And when I think about all that Paul has said about the importance of faith in Romans 3 and 4, and knowing what is coming in Romans 9 through 11, where Paul laments the state of his fellow Jews apart from Christ, that they need to be saved. I think we have to read the language of verse 17 as implying that people receive this salvation and that they receive it when they exercise faith in Christ. And that doesn't come from some posture of superiority or rejoicing in the possible torment of other people. We we should be brokenhearted like Paul is to consider the fate of those who don't know Christ. But all that he says makes us conclude in verse 17 that we must receive the salvation and do so by faith in order to benefit from these gifts. Are there any exceptions, you might ask? Well, evangelicals and Christians and Reformed Christians in particular have often seen an exception for infants who die in infancy. So the Westminster Confession even speaks of those who die in infancy. They are called and regenerated by God's grace. They are saved apart from faith. And then the confession goes to speak of all others who are outwardly incapable of being called by the word. So the confession does recognize God's grace to save apart from the ordinary means and puts infants in that category or those not capable of being called by the word. What we have to grapple with today are the people in this room. The ordinary way that God saves is by regenerating them by the spirit and they in turn believing in Christ. Those are the people who ordinarily receive the benefits of Christ's salvation. That is what you need to do if you never have. And if you have, then you need to rejoice in the greater results of the work of Christ. That if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. That if you are in Christ, life, not death, is your final destiny. That if you are in Christ, grace, not demerit, is your realm of acceptance. If you are in Christ, belonging, not exclusion, is your reality. And that's true no matter what your family or your friends or people at school or people at work, no matter how they treat you, the ultimate reality is you are connected to Christ, included, not excluded. And if you are in Christ, sin's power over you is broken. You don't have to live in that realm anymore, and with the Spirit living inside of you, you won't want to. And that's where Paul will go next week in Romans 6. And so Paul gives the summarizing conclusion of verses 20 to 21. The law was brought in. So that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Adam all die. But in Christ, 
all live. And if you are in him, you have grace, forgiveness, justification, righteousness, and life. I close with this question. What does that mean for us as a church? We've seen Paul's great benefits for each individual. What does it mean for us as a church? Well, what's the story that Paul is telling? He's telling a story of God's new creation. And when we look at what God is doing, we know what God is up to. This is his mission in the world, to create a new humanity. And so if Christ is your head, you are his body. You are that new creation. And this then is where Christ rules. It is in this body that Christ manifests himself, which means we have to heed that mission. To be the people that manifest and embody the grace, the love, the forgiveness, the life, the connection, the outreach that Christ demonstrates in his own mission in the world. And we can do that. We can go about that mission because Christ's obedience triumphs over our disobedience. So let's give thanks and pray together. Father in heaven, we do come to you and thank you for the greatness of the reign of Christ. Thank you for grace that is greater than all of our sin. And I do pray for your people here today that they would know that greater reality in their life. It is so easy, Lord, for us to see the reality of sin and death. We must not deny it, but I pray for your people here that this week they would live in the reality of the reign of Christ. And whether that's resting in acceptance or experiencing your power, living a holy life or participating in your mission, embodying you to someone at work or home, Lord, do that work in us. That we would live in that greater reality and that we would be transformed into that new reality that we would be able to do that work that you've called us to do. So thank you for Christ and his great grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.